0: I don't know if many of you have seen the show on PBS, the Antique Roadshow. Have any of you ever seen the Antique Roadshow? Okay, a bunch of you. It's kind of a fascinating show. It's basically uh, people bring all kinds of stuff to appraisers, and they hear uh, what their items are worth. So this could be stuff that they had found at a garage sale or family heirlooms. And so you got lines of people bringing their stuff to find out how much it's worth. Uh, The majority of the show is the people who are pleasantly surprised. Uh, Every once in a while, there's like one that's not really worth anything. But for the most part, they only air the exciting stuff. After the appraiser talks about that item, uh, the condition that it's in, its rarity, what makes it really special, there's kind of it's building up to this cliffhanger of how much it's worth. And then, when the person finds out, there's there's tears and there's joy or shock at this thing that they bought for two dollars. It cost fifteen hundred, or sometimes up to a million dollars. Now, then, at the end, in case you missed it, there's kind of a very not cool looking graphic that goes across the screen with this little tinkling sound. I don't know if that's like the sound of money in your purse or what sound that exactly is. If you guys can have to watch the Antique Roadshow now to figure out exactly what that is. Uh, But it shows what that item is and its value. We are talking about value this morning. This morning we're talking about the value of knowing Jesus Christ. Last time in Philippians, God's messenger, the apostle Paul Spoke of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We saw that Christ is so valuable that he is worth suffering the loss of all things. And what we saw, it's almost as if on the bottom of the screen it scrolls along value of Christ, priceless. You can't put a price tag on Christ, he's so valuable. And so today what we're going to see is Paul really doing some appraising work. He's going to explain why Christ is so valuable. So it's almost like uh, it's a little bit different than the Antique Roadshow, where they go on and on and on about how valuable this thing is, and then surprise you with a, with a cost. If this goes to auction, it's going to cost this much. And really what Paul did last week was talk to all about the cost. And we're going to see that in just a minute as we read through Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. We, we're going to see... We saw last week with the cost is, but now this week we're going to see Paul appraising Christ and talking about what his worth is. So go ahead, if you're not already there, turn to Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. And here comes the warning against false teachers. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ Uh, your word uh, for us. We thank you for the command to rejoice in your son. We thank you, Lord, that that's a good command and that we see many reasons why we should be rejoicing in him. And we're going to see some more this morning, Lord. And we thank you, Father, uh, for this warning. And you know... humans well and you know how sin has broken us that we have the tendency even after salvation this 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 danger of placing confidence in the flesh to look back at what we have done or what we haven't done our good works or our religious duties performed and uh, place confidence in them so we thank you for this warning uh, to count everything in the past as lost compared to knowing christ I pray, Father, that you would safeguard us this morning from the danger of placing confidence in those things. That, in, that we would be wary of, of really of, of doing anything that would compromise Christ to us, Lord, but that we would uh, gladly count all as lost, so that we might gain Christ. I thank you, Father, for verses 9 through 11 here that we're going to uh, see how valuable Christ is. In Jesus' name, amen. In uh, Philippians 3, verses 9 through 11 this morning, we're going to see three reasons why gaining Christ is worth losing all. Philippians 3, verses 9 through 11, we're going to see three reasons why gaining Christ is worth losing all. And we do see in verses 7 and 8, as we read through those, some of that uh, language that Paul uses. Paul uses this language of counting all things as lost, as lost whatever was gained, counting as loss for the sake of Christ. Christ was valuable. He talks about the surpassing value of knowing Christ. He's not going to place his confidence in anything. But he even goes beyond what you can place your confidence in. And he even goes further to the loss of all things. Anything that would keep me from Christ, I'm going to get rid of. Now, when Paul gives these reasons in verses 9 through 11... Why gaining Christ is worth is, is worth losing all? It's not an exhaustive list. Really, we could spend hours talking about how precious Christ is and how worthy Christ is and how valuable Christ is. But we're going to see uh, three reasons he gives. Now, Paul's appraisal of Christ in these verses is exactly what the Philippian church needed. The church Uh, It was on the eastern edge of what is today, Greece was about 10 years old. And over time, the church had started becoming tolerant of maybe sins we might call small sins. of, Of disunity and of grumbling. They hadn't been as zealous in working out their salvation with fear and trembling. But they were also a church that was facing persecution. They needed to persevere, to stay on mission, to stay focused while they were going through that persecution. We have already talked about this essential warning that Paul gives to the Philippian church because they were in danger from false teachers who advocated that their uh, being a Christian was incomplete, that their relationship with God was incomplete unless they added to it obeying the Old Testament law. We've talked the last couple of times that we've been in, in Philippians, that everyone will be tempted to hope in something besides Christ. Maybe it's a relative, your relative goodness, that you're not as bad as other people, or that you're better than some people, or maybe people are tempted to hope in their religious duties. Or maybe they're just tempted, and I think that this is more common for, for some of us, not to place our hope in those things we've done or haven't done, but some of us are just tempted to find hope in pleasure to hope in, in, in satisfaction, whether the uh, pleasure or the satisfaction of a relationship or gaining a certain achievement or having a certain experience or getting a certain possession or amount of money in your bank account. All of those things, whether they're good works or those experiences or people, are things that we could be tempted to hope in besides Jesus Christ. The conviction that all of those things behind us should be counted as loss, should be turned away from, comes from seeing the value of Christ. We have to see the value of Christ. And that's what we talked about last time. The nature of true saving faith. That requires true saving faith, requires that we accurately, accurately evaluate our spiritual condition apart from Christ. And that's exactly what Paul does when he counts all these things as loss. He looks in the back mirror and says, all those things, everything behind me. I'm not going to put any confidence in any of that. I'm not going to let any of that keep me from Christ. All of that compared to Christ, and he says, is rubbish. It's, 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 it's as filth as it's muck compared to Christ. Christ, and that's the second part. Or the second essential aspect of true saving faith is that Christ is valuable. That Christ is worth considering all of that as loss the conviction to turn away from self-confidence, to turn away from sin, to not put hope in anything besides Christ comes from seeing the worth of Christ. And that's where Paul goes next in verses 9 through 11. And 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 he gives reasons here, but you can see as we're going to read through them that he's emotional. He loves talking about Christ. So he almost just just bursts off the page here in enthusiasm. He just fireworks off the page as he talks about how good knowing Christ is. And by God's grace, you'll be convinced that knowing Christ is worth losing all. So here's the first reason why gaining Christ is worth losing all. The first is to gain Christ is to gain righteousness. To gain Christ is to gain righteousness. And we see that in verse 9. In the beginning of verse 9, Paul really continues the previous thought. So he says, and may be found in him. So it's just, we got to go back to to, to, uh, uh, verse 8. We'll start in verse 8 to catch that up. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. And those are really parallel phrases there. To gain Christ is to be found in him. What does it mean to be found in Christ? We see that in the beginning of verse 9. To be found in him. And Paul's looking here to the future when the believer, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ alone, stands before Christ. To be found in him means to, to prove to be, to be found means to prove to be, to, to be shown to be, to turn out to be. The result of being examined by God is that you are found in Christ. We, we might use that language a little bit when a jury finds someone not guilty. They didn't just find them, right? They, 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 they come to the decision. They prove to be not guilty. Or when someone's name is found on an invite list, that they are part of that exclusive party. They're found to be invited. To be found is not just to be found in Him. To be in Him, it's a phrase used a ton in, in the New Testament, especially by Paul. To be in Him means to be a full participant in Christ, to be a member of Him. And Christ means to be unified with Christ, to be one with Christ. That means you are freed from sin by his death. That you are unable to live a God-pleasing life through his, his, his resurrection. That's what it means to be in Christ. It's not only being part of Christ's family. It's not only belonging to him, although that's part of what it means to be found in him. It's also about being plugged in to the power plant of Christ. To have his power working in you so that you can obey him. Or you can think of being in him almost like being a, a hand transplant on the body of Christ. A hand transplant that works and that's alive because of your connection in him. Alive through him, empowered by him, connected to him. God's word tells us that there are two kinds of people in this world those who are in Adam or those who are in Christ. And you are all this morning either in Adam or you are in Christ. The original condition of every human is to be in our first ancestor, Adam. That means that we are still in a state in which we love sin. Even though we may feel the shame of sin or hate the consequences of sin, deep down, we still crave sin. To be in Adam is to be enslaved to sin. It is to be an enemy of God, to be awaiting judgment. That is the natural condition of every person because of their connection to the first man, Adam. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, your supernatural condition is is to hate sin. It is to be rescued from sin's dominion, to be rescued from sin's judgment, to be reconciled to God, and to be liberated, to love and obey Him, to be in Christ, is to be eternally alive. And each of you this morning, dependent on whether your faith is truly in Him, or either in Adam or, or in Christ. Nothing is more important that when you stand before God, you are found to be in Christ. You prove to be in Christ. You can imagine the foolishness of arriving the first day of spring training at Camelback Ranch with the Los Angeles Dodgers. You know, I was trying to figure out here, we're in Orange County, are there more Dodgers fans or Angels fans? I think there's more Dodgers fans here. Yeah, I I, I think. Imagine you go to training, any one of you, fully convinced that you are part of that team. You're so convinced that you have a full uniform on, right? You are there ready for spring training. Does that make you part of the team? Your convictions about being part of the team have nothing to do with it. Your name needs to be on the roster, right? You actually have to be on the team. It would be even more awkward if you were actually on the roster for the Giants, or on the roster for the angels. And then you go expecting to be having the full privilege of being on the Dodgers. You see the parallel there of which team are you on? Are you in Adam? Or are you in Christ? When the Lord Jesus returns, will you be found to be in him? The Bible gives lots of marks of what that saving faith is. We've talked a little bit about them. You love him. The purpose of your life is to please him. You're no longer a slave to sin. You have the fruit of the spirit in your life. You love people and desire for them to know him. You want to be in his word. Paul explains more what it means to be found in him. We could go to the middle of verse 9. To be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Everyone found in Christ will have righteousness, and these are really uh, these, these these phrases are, are synonyms. The question "Are you in Christ?" can be phrased "Are you righteous? Do you have the righteousness? Righteousness is that record of perfectly keeping God's law." Do you have that record of perfectly keeping God's law? That record which God requires from you. Can he look at you and say, yes, you are righteous. To be in him is to have this righteousness. So some of you, I mean, you can't, like, don't panic now, right? Or maybe you should panic. If you're in him but are scared that you don't have that righteousness. Well, you should be. These are similar terms, and we're going to explain more of that. So you you have to ask yourself, am I in him? Do I have this record of perfectly keeping his law? Have I obeyed him flawlessly? Now, this righteousness you must have will never come from your own efforts. Paul is a perfect example of someone who had come as close as anyone ever could. Outwardly, and we saw this in verse 6, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But we know that that's only him outwardly. You would look at him and say, what a law keeper. Give that man an A plus in law keeping. But that wasn't the reality in his heart. Inwardly, he was a law breaker. He was proud and he was covetous. He was enslaved to sin. He looked good, but he was broken on the insides. In fact, he, he, even, he, he talks about it almost like it's a positive thing, but all of his readers know it's not. We saw this in verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I was so zealous, I was killing Christians. That's how much of a law keeper I was. Right? We see that ultimately that he was bankrupt. He had, he had nothing. Paul himself would write in Romans 3, 10-12 about a righteousness. He said, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. We do see some of the difficulty here, right? It says, to be found in him. Is not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. It can't be gotten from the law. It's not going to come from doing good. But yet we need that righteousness. We need that record of perfect law keeping. Romans 3.20, Paul talks about that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You will not be declared righteous by doing. It's not by works that you can do to be declared righteous. Instead, he says, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Laws don't fix what is broken. Laws curb what's broken. Right? It's why we need so many laws in this world. To curb what's broken, you can't fix what's broken through the law. If we're going to have the righteousness that God requires, this perfect record of perfectly keeping His law, it will have to be an acquired righteousness. It will have to be an alien outside of you righteousness. It will have to be an undeserved righteousness. It will have to be a righteousness that's not your righteousness. That's what it means to be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. then further in verse 9. But that which is through faith in Christ... And that's good news, right? That which is through faith in Christ. Now, there's a debate between scholars. It seems like a a friendly debate. Whether this is faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. And it's actually very tough to answer that. Uh, We know that biblically both are true. Someone has only received Christ's righteousness through believing in him. And someone only receives Christ's righteousness because of his faithfulness. Because he perfectly obeyed God's law. And it's difficult because in the Greek, it's the same word for faith in something and faithfulness to someone. And the, and the prepositional phrase that kind of follows, it's a genitive there, uh, doesn't make this super clear. It could be the faithfulness of Christ, referring to his obedience. And scripture talks about Jesus' perfect law keeping, his record of perfect obedience. Of Paul's 24 uses of faith with other persons besides Christ. So when he says faith of someone, the 24 uses of faith with someone else references to the faith of an, of an individual, not in an individual. So it's the faith of Abraham, right? It's, it's, it's talking about the faithfulness of that person. Others, though, argue that Paul's talking about faith in Christ here. One commentator says that Paul nowhere else speaks unambiguously of Jesus as faithful or believing. He certainly speaks of individuals as believing in Christ. And that's true, although you could look at Romans 3.3 3, that talks about the faithfulness of God. Right? That God is faithful. And what does that look for a human? For a human to be faithful is to obey God. So I, I do lean towards when it says faith in Christ. I, I, I would lean towards that being the faithfulness of Christ. But I could go either way. And we're going to see that it doesn't change our understanding of of the text. Because Christ was totally faithful to God. He obeyed God 100%. And we're going to see in the end of verse 9, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul makes it extra clear. It is only upon your belief in Jesus Christ that someone can have this righteousness. At the end of verse 9, we see that this is the righteousness which comes from God, which is good because you and I do not have that record of perfect law-keeping in ourselves. That that righteousness is going, to come, is going to have to come externally. You've already broken the law. If you were able to do 100% law-keeping from here on forward, you would still have broken it. You are not going to get that righteousness in your own. It has to come from outside of you. It has to come from God. What good news here? The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's your response to the gospel. Your response to God's faithfulness, your response to God's truthfulness, that when He promises you that if you believe in His Son, you will be saved, when He promises righteousness, a declaration of, of just to the unjust, for all those who put place faith in their Son. You believe that. You come to him repentant and broken. You come to him realizing that you have nothing but that Christ has everything. You come to him needy and saying, I need Christ. I need his righteousness. And you do what Paul does and what he says he keeps doing. I count all as lost that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own. When you believe in Christ, you're so confident that God will give you Christ's righteousness. That you refuse to ever try to earn your own. Christ is your man. He's the one you put your confidence in. As Pastor John once described to me, all bets are placed on Christ. You're all in. You've got nothing reserved. You know, you, 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 you don't have a little in your pocket of some good works you can rely on later. Or a little secret sin you're going to, to cultivate in your downtime. You are all in. You are emptied out for Christ. You're not going to stock away a little savings in account a of your own righteousness. You're not going to keep a little sin that you're going to feed after midnight and see if it grows. That's for those of you who still remember Gremlins. That was a long time ago. When you put your faith in Christ, you've seen you need righteousness. And you will have Christ at all costs because you are terrified at the thought of coming before God in your own righteousness. So you flee to Him. You believe in Him. You put your faith in Him. He is your only hope. Does that describe you? Have you seen that you need righteousness from God? To know Christ. To be found in him is to gain the righteousness from God that God requires. And that's why Christ is worth losing all for. That's why Christ is, is the ultimate gain. Because you gain righteousness. That's our first point. To gain Christ is to gain righteousness. The second, to gain Christ is to gain transformation. To gain Christ is to gain transformation. In the beginning of verse 10 Paul continues, and, and, and you can see he's just, he, he's just waterfalling with these expressions of what it means to know him. And here's another one, that I may know him. It's like, well, Paul, you've been talking about knowing him. Well, he's going to describe it in a different way this time. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Those are explaining what it means to know him. To know him means to know the power of his resurrection, to experience the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We're going to spend time looking at those. To know Christ is to have the capacity to obey through the believer's supernatural, energizing union with Christ's resurrection. The person who puts their faith in Christ is unified with Christ. He is resurrected with Christ. He is dead to his sins. He is alive with Christ. Paul talks about that in Romans 6, verse 4. I'll read that to you. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, that our newness of life is linked to the resurrection of Christ, that, that as he is forever alive in heaven, those who have their faith in him are are. are I don't know, there's no good analogy for this. I mean, I've got my, 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 my electrical cord plugged into him, and that's okay, right? But, but it's because he's alive, I'm alive. and Because he obeys God, I can obey God. He enables us to obey his commands and to walk in newness of life and to live for the glory of Christ. Because of his resurrection, those who are in Christ who have his righteousness, have his power to love strangers. They have his power to make disciples. They have his power to say no to sin. They have his power to be holy. It's incredible. That's what it means to know him. This is what excites Paul about knowing him. He did not have the power of his resurrection before. All of his conformity to God's law was external. But now it's internal. Now it's real. Now he can be pleasing to God. This is good news. This is why Paul counts all else as loss. Because the only way you get obedience, you get true holiness, is through, resur- is through union with Christ and his resurrection. Now, it gets heavy here though, right? I mean, that sounds great. That may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Whoa. Like I was okay knowing the power of his resurrection. That sounds good, right? But the fellowship of it, the partnering with his sufferings and the original m- manuscripts, the best manuscripts, emphasize that these really are one phrase here, that these are inseparable. The second follows the first. The fellowship of the sufferings follows the, his power that comes from his resurrection, but that they are inseparable. Now, when P- Paul talks about suffering here, He's not talking about the vertical suffering that Christ experienced when God poured out his wrath on his son in the place of sinners. He's not talking about the suffering that Jesus experienced from God's wrath. He's talking instead about the horizontal suffering that Christ experienced from a hostile, self righteous world. What caused Christ to suffer? wall on earth straight up to the point of his death and including his crucifixion but i'm just not going to say god poured out his wrath on him but all that suffering that he went through we even read about that in luke this morning christ suffered because he spoke the truth about sin about man's inability to make themselves right with god he spoke truth about coming judgment often quoted that jesus spoke more about hell than heaven Christ suffered because he proclaimed the truth about himself, being the I am, being the way, the truth, and the life, being the bread of life. Christ suffered because he loved sinners, those who were known as sinners and welcomed them to himself. Christ suffered as he mourned over the effects of sin and coming judgment. Christ suffered because he cared for his sheep. Christ suffered because he embraced the mission of his Father. Because he did his Father's work. Because the Father's work was his bread. Because he put pleasing the Father above pleasing man. This is what put Christ on a collision course with this world. This is why he suffered. And those who have been changed through Christ's resurrection power will be partners in this suffering. These are inseparable and Paul says this is, this is gain, to know Christ. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He, he doesn't leave off the fellowship of his sufferings. This is what it means to really know him, to partner with him, experiencing the same kind of sufferings that he, sufferings, he suffered. Christ living in you will lead you to being treated like Christ was treated. G- Jesus promised in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Why? Because you've got my life in you. You are like me. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. That's after Jesus talks about abiding in him. But he being the vine and we the branches, the offshoots from him. We can't be like him and not be persecuted. Second Timothy three twelve says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you don't desire to live godly, you may escape being persecuted. First Peter four, verses twelve and thirteen, and this is such a big theme in the New Testament. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Again, interesting seeing Peter having the same, very similar phrase, sharing the sufferings of Christ. probably all of us have experienced some kind of even very minor mistreatment for being connected to someone else. Maybe that's because of your ethnicity, your nationality. I remember uh, going to South Africa once. It wasn't really even mistreatment. Just people had all kinds of assumptions about me because I was American, about what my politics were, about how I wanted my cola, all kinds of things. If you guys have traveled overseas, you see that that, that that there's this expectations about you because of who you are. Some people who are, who are bold, maybe, you know not to go into some parts of town, wearing a certain jersey, maybe of a different city. If you're wearing that jersey, you know you are risking mistreatment because of your aligning with that other team.
1: You can imagine,
0: and you, you, you've heard of Tom Brady, I imagine many of you have, the quarterback for the New England Patriots. I couldn't imagine his kids being in playgrounds at some schools and not being treated well. Right? Because such, such animosity towards Tom Brady, and people apparently love to hate him. Now, you could imagine on that playground, Tom Brady's son is, athletic, is as athletic as his dad is. And just amazing at whatever, when, when he plays football on the school playground, which the kids don't like him anyways. And then he goes out and does this amazing things. What's going to happen to Tom Brady's son? He's going to get even more mocked. The kids want him on his team, but they're still going to mock him, right? I just bring up these some these, these examples is that we know and have experienced, maybe it's because... Our parents did something to someone else's parents. There's some kind of rivalry. You go to that church versus this church. We've all experienced some kind of of mistreatment or misjudgment because of us being aligned with someone else. Living in the power of Christ, being in him will mean participating in his sufferings. If you are going to be like him, you will be treated like him. That's what it means to know him. Those, Those things are inseparable. And Paul goes even further. We see at the end of verse 10, being conformed to his death. As we participate in the kinds of sufferings which Christ went through, while being empowered by his resurrection, we will be made like Christ in his death. Now, I'm not talking about that uh, I, even a physical death. Like This isn't some kind of like, like self-torture where we're going to try to get ourselves persecuted. Or trying to conform to his death in some kind of mystical way. There's a province in the Philippines where each year on Easter, and this seems to hit the news every year, devout Catholics try to earn God's favor by whipping themselves, by crucifying themselves. They only leave themselves hang up there for a matter of minutes. But they actually have nails in their hands and in their feet. We're not talking about conforming conforming to his death in that way. This is not trying for some kind of mystical, i got to suffer a lot. It's, it's not just about it's, and what? it's not penance. It's just, he's just talking about what's going to happen. You're going to be conformed to him in his death. You're going to be morphed into his death. This is the Christian experience. The verb here is in the passive. This is not something that we have to try to do. I need to be conformed to his death. That's sadly, what these Filipinos do in a physical way, trying to conform to his death. No, this is something that God does to us. God is the one who makes us like his son. Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate act of submissive, obedient self-denial, right? That was his death. But his whole life had been one of selflessness and self-sacrifice. We read about this In the previous chapter in Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8, how Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He was obedient all the way through. Then he was obedient to 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 the extent of death, even death on a cross. If you're a Christian, I'm certain that you want to be like Christ. You want to be like Christ in your love for others, in your love for the Father, In your obedience. You want to be like Christ. But the reality is less comfortable. Being like Christ means being conformed to his death. Jesus knew this. It's what he challenged his followers with again and again. Matthew 16 verse 24 says. Then Jesus said to his disciples. If anyone wishes to come after me. He must deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. Jesus knew that his followers would need to be conformed to his death. Would they need actual physical crosses? No. But, but this whole mindset that, 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 that me being like Christ, living in his resurrection power, is going to mean my suffering, even to the point that all of this life is going to, be, is going to end in my dying to myself. It's going to end in my death. Following Jesus is following him to your death. Dying to your desire for approval. Dying to your desire for respect as we speak God's truth. It means dying to the captivating allure of what our eyes see and what our flesh craves. It means dying to your plans and to your aspirations and to your dreams as you do what Jesus commands instead. It means dying to what is safe. As you reach out to those who need him. Right? Right there. just it, It's weird being conformed. to His death gets played out. Do you love people? Then you have to tell them good news. Right? You have to. It will put you on a collision course with the world. That is conforming to his death. If we stay silent, we won't conform to his death. But what is the power of his resurrection doing in you? Is it creating love for others? Are, are you okay With them, not knowing him. God's plan for you in this life is to be like Christ in his death. To be rejected and ignored. That's God's plan for us. Not all the time, but that includes that. It's to be busy. If you're going to do, Christian, if you're going to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ... If you're going to reach out to lost world, you're going to be busy. You're going to be burdened. Your heart is going to break. I mean, if your heart's not breaking, I have to be careful of these categorical statements. If your heart's not breaking, do you have Christ's resurrection power living in you? His heart was broken. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You will be a stranger to this world's promises of pleasure, of ease, of recognition. Paul doesn't end there. Being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. To gain Christ is to gain righteousness. To gain Christ is to gain transformation. To have his resurrection power working in you so that you suffer alongside with him. That you die along with him. Not in that way of that substitutionary death. Not like trying to put yourself up on the cross. But just experiencing the same rejection from the world. The same saying no to self. It's also, and third, to gain Christ is to gain glorification. To gain Christ is to gain glorification. We see in verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul differentiates from the resurrection in verse 10. He, he adds a, a, prep, a, a, a prefix to this word. So it's kind of really, if you could see the Greek, it's kind of like from resurrection from the dead. Out of resurrection, out of the dead. He, he puts a little prefix at the beginning to separate this from the resurrection power of Christ. And he's talking about something different here. He's looking towards the end stage. Not that union we have with Christ right now in his resurrection power, but the resurrection out of the dead. Now both the New American Standard Bible, which many of us use, and ESV, which many of us use, smooth over a difficulty in the Greek. The NASB says, in order that I may attain to, to the resurrection from the dead. And the ESV says that by any means, means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. But more literally, it's if somehow. If somehow I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now you can see why our versions kind of gloss it over. It's a little awkward, right? Like, wait, did Paul not know that he was going to attain the resurrection out of the dead? I thought Paul knew he was saved. Was, was, was he somehow doubting? Well, we know Paul knew he had Christ's resurrection, right? He'd counted all his losses so that he might gain Christ. He knew that he had Christ's righteousness. He knew that he had his resurrection power. He was going through Christ's sufferings. Philippians 121, Paul talks about how for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knew that the moment that sword lopped off his head, he'd be with Christ, and it's better. So it wasn't like he was there doubting, like, oh, am I saved? Am I not saved? If somehow, if perhaps I attain to the resurrection of the dead, if somehow. But, but I do think, though, that Paul wants to express that he never let his confidence in Christ prevent him pr- from pursuing hard after Christ. Paul never let his confidence in Christ prevent him from pursuing hard after Christ. And we see this is where Paul's going to go next. In verses 12 through 14. The next time in, uh, we're, 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 we're in Philippians, we'll cover these. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for it's Christ for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm looking forward. And so I do think that there is this the, the, the slight element, not of doubt in Christ, but of self-doubt, of cautiousness. Yeah, he, Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 9, 26-27. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He was eager and yearning for the finish line. So, an illustration of not doing this, and some of you may remember from the 2006 Winter Olympics when Lindsay Jacoboulis was approaching the end of her run, She had a 43-meter lead, 140-foot lead on the person behind her, a three-second lead. And instead of just going for the finish line, she shows off, does a method grab on the snowboard. Not that I know what that really is. But does one, I remember seeing it, and falls. And she loses the gold medal. I didn't spoil it. It happened a long time ago. Loses the gold medal. Why? Because she got overconfident so Paul does not want to be overconfident. Yes, his hope, his confidence is in Christ. But in his running, in his effort, he has this expectation. If, if perhaps I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, I'm reaching out for that. I'm running for that goal. I want to be resurrected out of the dead to be glorified in my new body forever with Christ, forever pleasing Christ. He wouldn't let himself take liberties while waiting for his new body. Those who gain Christ will be glorified. We will be resurrected to be as pleasing to God as Christ is pleasing to him. To love others like Christ loves them. To have the attitude that Christ does. We will enjoy forever pleasure without lust and gluttony. Enjoy forever relationships without envy and slander. Enjoy work without grumbling and complaining. Enjoy singing to Him without wondering, what are the people around me thinking? Enjoy worship without being distracted. That is what we're waiting for. That is the resurrection out of the dead we can't wait for. That's our glorification. That's what it means to know Christ. It means to be forever pleasing to Him. Our every impulse to only be in conformity to His commands. This is what those who gain Christ have to look forward to. Righteousness that's been given. Transformation occurring now. And glorification in the future. And how, how dreadfully different than those who don't know Christ. They will be resurrected. But they go from death to eternal destruction. Bible talks about that in Revelation 12 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. So John, in his vision of Revelation, sees God on his throne, "...and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire." This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire." They are resurrected from death to be eternally dead. That's not the resurrection that Paul's talking about. That's not what he wants to. He wants to be out of the dead. He wants to be forever with Christ glorified. See, Paul counts all things rubbish so that he can gain Christ. Everything that would slow him down. Paul longed for this glorification, for this resurrection from the dead. But only those who have been conformed to his death will participate in this resurrection. That's what this life is now. It's being conformed to his death. Those who lose their lives will gain Christ. And we see what the worth of knowing Christ is. What those who get Christ gain. Those who gain Christ gain righteousness from God. Those who gain Christ gain transformation unto Christ's likeness Those who gain Christ gain glorification at the resurrection of the dead. But some of you here this morning still think that that price is too high to follow Christ. That giving up your self-righteousness is not worth it. That forsaking your attempts to fix yourself are not worth them. That being rejected like Christ was rejected is not worth it. That an eternity, if forever submitting to God, is not worth it? Is that you this morning? Are you still blinded to what's truly valuable? Or have you seen the worth of Christ? Have you seen that Christ is gain? Has God opened your eyes to the worth of knowing Christ? Gaining Christ is worth losing all. Amen? Father, I thank you uh, for your word, and I thank you for how you spoke through your messenger, Paul. Thank you for preserving these words uh, for us so that we uh, have this picture of what it means to know Christ, what it means to gain Christ. Why it would be so foolish to place any confidence in the flesh? Why I'd be so foolish to, 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 to cling to any sin. And, and I confess, Lord, that, that we find ourselves doing that again and again. Lord, we pat ourselves on the back. I confess, Lord, we do that. How we're different from others or better than others or unlike others, Lord. Or, or, how, or how we cling to sins instead of run from them, Lord. How, how we hide them and cultivate them. We try to minimize them. We try to keep them at bay instead of putting them to death. Lord, we so quickly forget how valuable, how precious your son is. How how precious these blessings are of gaining Christ. Oh Lord, I thank you for the righteousness that comes from you. God, each of us here desperately needs a righteousness from you. We can never have that record of perfect law keeping if it didn't come from you. If it didn't come from the faithfulness of your son, of the obedience of your son of him taking the punishment for our sins. Thank you, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for what you are doing in this life. And Lord, I know that the more that we love you, the more we'll love our transformation. Lord, the more, and I know that, I know that we get excited of not being slaves to sin anymore. Uh, it is harder uh, to embrace the fellowship of his sufferings. Lord, I pray that our love for Christ and our love for you would go so deep that, 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 that those would be inseparable in our hearts as they are in the Greek text, Lord. That those two things would go together, that being conformed to Christ's death would be the transformation that we go through. That we would be picking up our cross and following him, that we would become like him even to, to the extent of death, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would give us boldness, Lord. I know that, that many of us feel badgered by a world that does not want to hear truth. Lord, I pray that we would have renewed boldness, Lord. That our righteousness would overflow into words. Lord, we don't want our righteousness to be only words. Lord, we want to have all kinds of holy actions. Lord, but we don't want to stop short of having righteous words, Lord. Help us to speak truth that we might participate. That we might know the fellowship, the partnering with Christ in his sufferings. Lord, we thank you, Father, for what we have to look forward to. And, Lord, it is our great hope, Lord. We're confident in Christ's resurrection, but, Lord, we don't want to live foolishly now. We want to look forward to the resurrection of the dead. We want to, we want to uh, live as, as, as not sure of ourselves until we reach that finish line, Lord. That we'd be guarded against deceiving ourselves, Lord. That we'd be guarded against all the things that, that can distract us, Lord. That we'd be, that we'd be afraid of, of not confessing Christ before men. Lord, help us to be faithful until the end that we might be glorified and glorify Christ forever as we are made like Him. And as you see in us for eternity the image of your Son, Lord, we 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 long for that. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful until the return of Christ. I do pray, Father, for those who who haven't gained Christ yet. I pray that you would use these words, Lord, the words from your scripture. Lord, the the inspired words in Philippians to, to, to show that Christ is worth losing all for and that you would work in their hearts even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.